the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, transcripts, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Drew Scott. Today, we're going to talk about the issue of capital punishment, along with the other methods of social control that are used within small groups and our larger civilization. And we'll be doing it through the lens of Richard Wrangham's pivotal book, The Goodness Paradox. If you've been following our podcast over the past year, you'll remember that we've done three episodes about this before. We've worked our way through the book a few chapters at a time. This will be our final installment in this series, which began with episodes 29, 31, and 36. We've been through chapters one through seven of the book in detail. Today, we'll cover chapter eight, as well as the afterword, which is Dr. Rangham's short and definitive statement of his position on modern capital punishment. There are more chapters in this book, 13 altogether, but they just go more in depth on the topics we've already covered about human self-domestication, etc. So if you like our series on this, we highly recommend that you take the time to fully digest this book on your own. Today, we'll discuss the strong parallels between human domestication in small bands of hunter-gatherers and the culture of honor, violence, and retribution in the television series, Sons of Anarchy. We'll also discuss the news, including the Delta surge in the COVID pandemic that's impacting all of us and an evolution in our position about the embattled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Yes, that means we made a wrong call, and we're always going to admit that to our listeners when we find out new information. We care more about standing up for truth and justice than being right every single time. But first, I want to remind you to please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. And also, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the radical secular. We'd really appreciate your support, even if it's just buying us a cup of coffee every month. We have support tiers from $3 a month on up and new episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. And speaking of the journal, this week, our co-host, Joe Acapinti, posted the first installment of his five-part series on the five currents of power, discussing some of the details of the different political and socioeconomic divides beyond mere right versus left that have shaped world history during the past few centuries. He breaks down authoritarianism versus libertarianism, statism versus anarchism, capitalism versus socialism, to name just a few. We're excited about that series, and we hope you all enjoy reading it. Now, before we get started on our show, I want to announce the names of our newest Patreon supporters, and we couldn't be more excited to have them. We have big plans to build a strong secular community around our Patreon, and though we waited a long time to get this started, we're excited to interact more closely with our most loyal fans. The Patreon page doesn't look like much yet, but we're going to be building it out as we grow. It's never fun asking anyone for money. <laughs> we do this podcast because we love it. And of course, any money we raise is going to go straight back into first paying our hosting costs, which add up, believe it or not. And then as we get more support, that money will go straight into growing and building our network. So thank you to Ken Cobb for supporting us at the $9 a month tier. Ken's a longtime Facebook friend and listener. We talk a lot online and he's always supportive of our work and full of his own insights. So thank you again, Kent. And we also welcome Doug Berger, host of The Secular Left, to our Patreon team. 
He's also at $9 a month. Doug interviewed Christoph and I on his podcast a few weeks ago, and that episode is now live at secularleft.us. Thanks for having us on your show, Doug, and thanks for your support. It means a lot. All right, now let's get to the t-shirts. Drew, what are you wearing today? I'm wearing an Obama Hope parody shirt that features uh, <laughs> General William Tecumseh Sherman. <laughs> yes, I love who, that. And I love I love your Sherman Saturdays, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do uh, posts on social media about General Sherman or just, you know, civil rights and civil war in general uh, every Saturday. And, uh, you know, General Sherman is a complicated, controversial figure for a lot of reasons. And, uh, you know, I try to, to project a version of him that, you know, is the fiery force of vengeance that's turning the slave owners to ashes. Whereas in reality, you know, he kind of did some not so great things to Native Americans after the war and all of that. But at the same time, we probably wouldn't have won the Civil War without him. So it's a complicated, complicated figure. But he enrages the Confederate sympathizers and the far right, you know, assholes of today. So I use him as that sort of symbol. You know, you really can't find a pristine character in history. And all you can do is uh, hope that somebody is more on the side of right than less. And it's often the most conflicted, morally ambiguous characters that make the biggest difference, I think. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think, you know, General Sherman should have kept marching. I think he should have burned Atlanta. I mean, I think he should have done a lot of things. But, you know, it's, I agree. Hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, my t my T-shirt today is is you know it really covers this whole issue of deplatforming, and uh, I'm taking a, a bit of a different uh, stance today, and that is to give Nazis a platform, and I think you'll see what I mean in a second. <laughs> that yeah. is a nice guillotine platform, and that is where we think all Nazis should go because yeah. the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. Gallows also works. Also an acceptable platform. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Gallows humor is good, too. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's get into the news. I, I first am going to talk about the it's obvious the Delta variant. We're headed into an unprecedented surge of COVID cases, which is almost entirely a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The latest seven day average of new daily cases in the U.S. is one hundred and one thousand. Okay, daily new cases and the seven day average of daily COVID deaths is now 440, but we've been up as high as 650. So these figures are according to Worldometer. The surge is serious and strong. And as we know, deaths lag new case figures by as much as three weeks to a month. So we could be headed for daily death tolls that meet or even exceed the horrific numbers from January 2021 when about 4,000 Americans were dying every day. So let's try to understand what's happening. There are several things that are different with Delta. Even if you've heard all this, I want to drill it into everyone's heads because you're all going to be dealing with pushback from friends and family, not just over vaccines, but over the facts of the situation. Everyone is an expert, it seems, not. And uh, you need to be able to give them real information that can save their lives, even if they don't want to hear it. You know, this is this is where we're at right now. So um, the first thing we have to talk about is R0, and the R0 uh, of the original COVID-19 virus was about 2.5, meaning that each person who contracts the virus will pass it along to an average of 2.5 other people. The Delta variant has an R0 of 3.5 to 4, according to YaleMedicine.org. So everyone who gets it is going to pass it on to like between three and four other people. 
it might not seem like too much more, about a 50% increase in the r naught, but it's much worse than it seems because when you're talking about exponential growth, each of those three or four other people are going to pass it to three or four more other people. And so the wave builds much faster, faster than our hospitals can keep up. So it's like the worst Kevin Bacon game ever. <laughs> yeah. Or, or a mousetrap or whatever. <laughs> um, so there's also this concept you have to be aware of, of viral loading, meaning how much of the virus is contained in your bodily fluids, which include the tiny water droplets that you exhale. This is something that a lot of mask uh, opponents don't seem to understand that, you know, sure, the virus is too small to get through your mask, but the water droplets aren't. And so that's what your mask captures and prevents from spreading into the room. So with Delta, the viral loading is up to a thousand times higher than the original COVID virus. A thousand times. I mean, it's hard to imagine. And that's, but that's according to nature.com. That's frightening. You know, and here's why that's important. The, the guidelines for masking and staying six feet apart were designed around the original virus. And they're going to be much less effective when you're talking about a thousand times more virus particles floating around. It's, it's truly scary stuff. And you absolutely need to mask up again in public, even if you're vaccinated, because you can be a carrier of the virus, even if you only have mild symptoms or no symptoms. Uh, the beauty of the vaccine is that if, if you're vaccinated, even if you test positive for COVID, you're only going to get a mild case, which is known as a breakthrough case. And uh, from what I've heard, though, people who've gotten these breakthrough cases say it's still fucking miserable. So, you know, you just don't want to you don't want to take any chances with this. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, though, is that almost no one who gets the vaccine is going to end up on a ventilator or dead. People will say, well, if the vaccine works and masks work, why do we have to worry about Delta? The reason is, is because you could spread it to someone who's not vaccinated. And this is especially a concern for children because there's no authorized vaccine for children right now at all. And it turns out that a lot more kids are getting Delta than the original COVID. Some of them are dying. We're seeing children's hospitals fill up in some cities. Today, I read a story on CNN about an 11-month-old baby who had to be airlifted to a different hospital because there were no more beds available. And this is very, very serious because, you know, uh, kids aren't kids can't get the vaccine. They won't give it to them. So they're literally staking their lives on the adults doing their jobs. And school starts for a lot of kids just a week or two from now. So what we really have to keep in mind about the virus is not just keeping people from dying. The real danger is that the longer the virus circulates in the wild, the greater the chance of an even worse mutations happening. So we're already dealing with a Delta Plus variant and the first case of the Lambda variant has been seen in Texas. Both of these new variants are thought to be more vaccine resistant than current for, to current formulations than Delta is. So we're looking at best case, everyone's going to have to get a, a, a booster shot or, or a third shot. Uh, worst case at a COVID variant evolving that evades our vaccine defenses entirely. It's entirely possible. So uh, here's the thing you have to remember about viruses. They can't reproduce or evolve on their own. Their entire life cycle relies on the availability of hosts in which to replicate. So the longer this pandemic of the unvaccinated continues, the higher the chance of more cycles of transmission. The only truly safe way to put an end to COVID is for everyone to get the vaccine. There's probably no greater imperative in the world and no greater threat to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness than COVID right now, aside from possibly climate change. So one more thing before I finish up, scientists are finding out more and more about so-called long COVID, which refers to the lifetime effects of surviving this disease. You can look up the symptoms and they can be severe. Uh, from lung problems, kidney, liver, heart problems, loss of smell and taste, 
These effects are debilitating and in many cases can shorten people's lifespan. But here's the real kicker. COVID attacks the brain. Early results are that so-called COVID brain fog can shave an average of seven IQ points off a person's intelligence, and there's every indication that this brain damage is permanent. So what do you think, Drew? I mean, how have you been feeling over the past week about this news? I mean, you know, we talked about this last week. I, I just think that we need to get a lot more, frankly, draconian and forceful about this than a lot of Americans in particular are willing to get. I don't care if it's the carrot or the stick, you know, I don't, I don't care if it's, Hey, we give everyone who's vaccinated a hundred bucks. I don't care if it's, you can't get on a plane or a train or get a driver's license or get a job or go to school without a vaccination. I don't care what it is. We got to do everything at our disposal to, to make these people do the right thing. Cause this is ridiculous. I'm getting tired of this. We, we should have beaten this already. We could have beaten this already. If everyone had just gotten the vaccine as soon as it was available and continued to socially distance until that ran its course, we'd be in a much different place today than we are now. Yeah, it's so funny because I'm looking at uh, some of the things Republicans are saying, and some of it's just hard to believe. Like there was something that came out of Texas where they were giving guidance to schools saying that, well, you know, if a student, uh, you know, has been in contact with another student who's COVID positive, uh, they can come to school. And, or, you know, the, the, the anti-mask mandates basically of, of governors making it illegal for school districts to require masking. And it's just like, I, I we've, we've, all talked about this until we're blue in the face over the past year. And it's, it's kind of hard not to be repetitive, but I mean, what are we, what are we looking at here with this Republican party? Who are they? Yeah. I mean, I saw Ron DeSantis trying to tell Biden that he wasn't in a place to tell him anything about COVID because of the border quote, you know, something like that. He's trying to equate, you know, this manufactured issue of the border crisis to <laughs> to <laughs> Biden's authority on, on the COVID issue. It's just, just nonsensical. It's like, you have to just kind of laugh, but you know, did, he's their front runner, potential front runner in 2024, this guy. Yeah. I mean, does DeSantis realize that Florida is surrounded on three sides by water? I mean, like what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. He's uh, he's ridiculous. Just another Trump simp. Yeah. Well, what really kills me about this is this, kind of continuing parade of patients and their families that recognize too late that they screwed up. I saw an interview with a nurse whose mother died and she had to beg her father to get vaccinated. And he only listened to her and agreed to get the vaccine when she basically screamed at him, dad, I'm not going to bury another one of my parents. You know, like <sighs> the whole thing is just yikes, man. Um, a final note, and then we're ready to, you know, be done talking about COVID for today. We're expecting at the very least the Pfizer vaccine to receive FDA approval by the end of the month. And that should take away one more excuse, I guess, from the unvaccinated. Yeah. I mean, not that they had any valid excuses to begin with. I mean, the only people with valid excuses are people with legitimate weakened immune systems who cannot be vaccinated, the kind of people we're trying to protect with these measures. Right. But I guess I should have said pretext because they'll just, you know, if it wasn't that they would make something up, but at least it takes away one kind of more logical roadblock that they throw up. Absolutely. All right. Well, we got to switch gears now and talk about Governor Andrew Cuomo. And this is just a terrible story because 
We love our Democrats here on the radical secular, and we hate to see an otherwise good Democrat taking a huge fall. But we got this one wrong. Um, before the investigation, we were looking at the accusations being made against Governor Cuomo, and we were frankly concerned that they just might be another Republican hit job. Uh, it's happened before with Senator Al Franken and, of course, Representative Katie Hill. Uh, we didn't think that Cuomo should have resigned before the investigation, but now the investigation is over and there's a whole lot more damning evidence that's come to light. And I'm going to quote here from an article in the New York Times. The article's called, Completely Violated, Women Describe Cuomo's Groping and Intimidation. It begins with a reporting on the release of a 165-page report that came out last Tuesday by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The report includes some pretty graphic descriptions of the governor touching and making wildly inappropriate sexual comments and innuendo to about a dozen female subordinates, including female state troopers responsible for protecting him. I mean, that that, that one really just got to me, right? Uh, they, 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 these, these women are protecting your safety and they're not safe in your presence. I mean, it's mind boggling, but it's not the worst part. Okay, the worst part is that Cuomo knew he was doing it and he knew it was wrong. The evidence of his knowledge uh, is that when he made these inappropriate comments and touched women, he specifically told them not to say anything to anyone about it. And it wasn't just him personally. His office actively suppressed and derailed the reporting of the abuse to proper state authorities. And I'll quote from The New York Times. To exist as a woman in Mr. Cuomo's orbit, the report suggested was to live the dichotomy between fear and flirtation a space where the boss could toggle between intimate and intimidating and where his senior most aides seem to operate with a singular focus on the governor's reputation and personal comfort. In fact, the report says, as Mr. Cuomo sexually harassed women inside and outside his government, greater pains were taken to protect him from himself. The executive chamber declined to report harassment allegations from an executive assistant, Charlotte Bennett, to the appropriate state agency and moved instead to establish a practice preventing certain female staff members from being left alone with a governor. The composition of his circle and the reports telling was likewise intended to minimize exposure for Mr. Cuomo and accentuate a culture of fear around confronting him with access granted chiefly to those with a proven personal loyalty. Those with Mr. Cuomo's ear included state employees like Melissa DeRosa, his top aide, and outside advisors like his brother Chris Cuomo, the CNN anchor, with no formal obligation to the state. The result, investigators wrote, was that employees who are not part of this inner circle of loyalists would rightfully believe and did believe that any complaint or allegation about the governor would be handled by people whose overriding interest is in protecting the governor. So bleak were the options available to Mr. Cuomo's victims, witness interviews showed that even unwelcome sexualized attention could be seen as a better alternative to the otherwise tense, stressful, and toxic experience in the executive chamber, end quote. I mean, Drew, I just think this is awful. Um, but how do you respond to it? I mean, you know, I'm reminded of Anthony Weiner, honestly, and that whole thing. You know, another guy who on the surface seemed like a solid Democrat. And then we find out all this stuff that's like, no, dude, you are a fucking creep. And it sucks because on Fox News right now, this is all they are talking about. And they are morphing the Democratic Party into the Cuomos. Right. Right. And it's just it's it's the bottomless pit of bad faith. Right. I mean, We've unfortunately, fortunately, we've heard these reports before about powerful men, and I'm just wondering 
what it's going to take to turn the corner on this. This doesn't keep happening for Democrats because we know the Republicans are hopeless. This is a goldmine for them because th- this is their party in spades. I mean, they've got 50 people guilty of this shit, right? And we've yeah, got Matt Gates. Yeah, Matt Gates for for one, but I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, there there are there are so many scandals in the Republican Party, and there's so many people on the religious right taking the fall every other week. It seems like. I mean, wasn't there just one who who was arrested for uh, child procurement or something? I mean, this it just goes, it just happens repeatedly. Okay. Um, yeah, they have no moral leg to stand on. I mean, this is the same party that nominated a racist cartoonish game show host to be the head of their party so uh, who has a slew of sexual assault allegations against him you know on his own and so it it just boggles my mind that that they feign this outrage but i i get it there they have no morals so they'll do and say anything to try to score political points especially with the midterms coming yeah, and it's a bonanza for them. We give them this bonanza, and that's what—that's why I think we have to be extra cautious as Democrats. And you know, Cuomo, when he got up there, his statement—he made a statement after the report came out that was so tone deaf and so full of denial and deflection and whining about how painful the process has been for him and his family. And then he re- he goes and releases a series of photographs, including President Obama and President Biden hugging people, as if to say that he had done nothing different. When it's absolutely obvious and, and and just glaring from this report that he was engaged in not only not only really creepy behavior but but a cover-up so you know biden isn't having any of it his response was to ask cuomo to resign and we agree that's yeah. why we've made a meme that says heave ho cuomo's gotta go <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah, you know, it's it seems like he's going to try to fight it out, at least for now, which is incredibly frustrating, you know, and I think back to a year ago when everyone was praising him for how, you know, he was kind of, you know, leading the nation essentially through the COVID crisis. And that but then I realized that a big part of that was because we just had a huge leadership vacuum in this country. You know, we had Donald Trump, who was up there telling lies and telling people to inject disinfectant and take hydrochloroquine and it'll be over by Easter and all this crazy stuff. And, you know, there was no one just leveling with people. And, you know, we now know about, you know, the nursing home stuff and now all this. It's just it's very disappointing and frustrating. And, you know, Anybody who could get up on TV uh, in a suit and not engage in science denial was it was like a breath of fresh air, right? Yeah. Yeah. I used to say that I could, you know, walk out in the street and pick someone off the, the corner at random and they would be a better president than Donald Trump. So, I mean, I get it. You know, uh, he and he and Newsom, I think, kind of were 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 guiding lights for a lot of people through the through the pandemic with with their straightforward uh uh, uh, conferences and stuff, but in in hindsight, it's just it's like I said, it's very disappointing, very frustrating. I wish he would resign. He's making us all look terrible. Yeah, and and I'm hearing all this pushback from Democrats saying, "Oh my God, it's a Republican plot." No, all right. If he resigns, uh, we get uh, Kathy Hochul. I, I think that's how you say her name, who is the lieutenant governor. She's a Democrat, and and she takes over, and then somebody's got to run run next fall. Right? That's how this works. And there's just, I think sometimes there's this tendency very much like Republicans of Democrats just to circle the wagons. And, you know, we've been very vocal here at the Radical Secular about not criticizing 
Democrats unnecessarily. But this is a situation where uh, we have a clear path forward. We have a Democrat who can take over. And there's no reason not to hold this guy accountable, because if we hold this guy accountable, then Fox News loses their talking point. Yeah. The longer this guy is in office and remains in office and is defiant, the more they can accuse us of being hypocrites. Yeah. Even though they're the hypocrites and we all know that it's just they have absolutely. I mean, rock bottom has a sub basement basically with these people. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't. I mean, uh, Gavin, Gavin Newsom is, is suffering some of the same kind of of criticism for going out to a restaurant without a mask early in the pandemic. And uh, he's that that's got the recall going. I mean, he he's suffering to the point where we may actually see the governorship in California turn over. And this is really scary because I've been reading that it, the polls are now in a dead heat for this recall. And a lot of it has to do with a lack of voter enthusiasm. And everybody's getting a mail-in ballot in California. So there's no excuse for any Democrat not mailing that damn thing in and, and keeping Newsom in office. Because I got to tell you, if, if a Republican gets in right there, they have an opportunity to monkey wrench California, do the same thing to California's elections, same thing to COVID policies. I mean, it's it. the idea that was, was just unthinkable up, up until a few weeks ago that Newsom might lose this thing. Yeah, I mean, I remain optimistic. Um, I don't think Californians will, will go go that way. I remain hopeful of that, but we'll see. I hope they, they do the right thing. Well, you know, the Republicans are going to be highly motivated. So if we don't get at least um, half of Democrats returning their ballots in this thing, the Republicans will win. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm registered to to vote by mail and have been ever since they they made that an option here in this state. And it's great. It boggles my mind that that's not more widely accepted or more popular, that it's not just a national thing that we do for every state. Just mail the ballot and mail it back. I mean, if it's safe to mail the driver's license that you use to register to vote, it's safe to mail the ballot. That that yeah. whole anti-mail-in ballot argument is complete bullshit. It's just more bad faith. They're just looking to throw up roadblocks and uh, yeah. they're succeeding in a lot of places. All right. Well, best of luck to California. Don't fuck this up. All right. I wish I could vote, but I'm in Nevada. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on now to our main topic for the day, which is capital punishment, otherwise known as the death penalty. Just a quick refresher, if you missed our previous three episodes covering the goodness paradox by Richard Rangham, very briefly, Rangham has established that in our divergence from chimpanzees on the evolutionary tree, humans have become much less violent, particularly in the domain of reactive aggression, which is hot or emotional aggression. It's why 100 human beings can mostly, note I said mostly, sit together quietly on an airplane. <laughs> Obviously, this doesn't count the idiots who have to be duct taped to their seats because they're acting like assholes. Yes, that happened this week. But <laughs> it's still rare. On the other hand, if you had 100 chimpanzees on an airplane, they would immediately start tearing each other apart without question. And that is because they have much higher levels of reactive aggression than we do. This change took place gradually over the past 300,000 or so years, and we refer to it as domestication. It's similar to the difference between wolves and domesticated dogs. It's not a matter of training or following laws. Modern humans have evolved to be less aggressive by nature than our distant ancestors. This goes hand in hand with an increase in proactive aggression, which is basically cold, rational, preemptive violence used to achieve particular goals or to prevent other violence. 
This would involve either individuals working together to commit organized crime, defeat a bully, or it could refer to warfare or state-sanctioned violence such as caning or the death penalty. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the death penalty both in modern terms and its role in our domestication. Rangan begins his chapter discussing how the use of the death penalty evolved. In a particular case in 1820, a 16-year-old juvenile named Stephen Merrill Clark had set fire to a stable and the fire destroyed several homes and other buildings. No one was hurt or killed, yet he was sentenced to death anyway and executed in a public hanging, because at that time, the death penalty covered a wide range of minor offenses. Only a year or two later, laws changed and he would have been sent to prison. His execution was one of the last in the United States for a non-capital crime only involving property. Now, we recognize this perfectly legal killing in the United States as particularly barbaric. It brings to mind a lynching or summary frontier justice in front of a hanging judge. The kid was 16. The fire was possibly an accident. We don't know. But the idea of executing a kid for minor arson seems insane to us now. But uh, these kind of killings have been extremely common in our evolutionary history and civilization. And they're even codified into scripture as being, quote, sanctioned by God. And some of the offenses for which early American colonists in the 17th century could be put to death included witchcraft, idolatry, blasphemy, rape, adultery, bestiality, sodomy, and in New Haven, Connecticut, masturbation. You could be put to death for being a child of 16 or older who was a stubborn or rebellious son who smote or cursed a parent. And this is one reason why we're doing this show on the subject today, continuing to focus on the abuse of the death penalty, because a secular humanist approach tends to deplore state-sanctioned killings unless the crime is particularly egregiously heinous, like child murder or terrorism or possibly high treason. And the or rationale- Voting Republican. Voting Republican. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we're kidding, of course. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but the rationale here uh, is harm reduction restorative justice versus retributive justice. Let's take the example of this poor 16-year-old kid. Had he lived, he could have helped rebuild the homes he'd burned. Nothing is learned or gained by such an execution, and the community loses a potentially valuable member. Another absurd example, this is you're going to laugh at this, uh, that occurred in New Haven, Connecticut, was that after a one-eyed pig was born, a one-eyed man was executed for supposedly committing, committing bestiality with the sow. I mean, <laughs> these people were fucking idiots and there's no other way to describe it. The mind just reels that they were so ignorant of biology that they would have made this assumption about a one-eyed man. It's kind of ironic because New Haven is now this Ivy League bastion where Yale University is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the irony uh, is, is pretty overwhelming, uh, but things change, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you just like, you know, to think that somehow uh, a trait could be passed from a human to an animal by like it. Yeah. I mean, it falls in line with, you know, a lot of crazy superstitions that I think could be traced back to the, the Bible or any other period of time when, you know, you used superstitions and myths and things to try to explain things that you couldn't explain because science didn't, you know, make that kind of progress at that point, point in time. So it's almost along the lines of thinking that, you know, disease is an evil spirit and, uh, you know, divine punishment or something like that. It's, it's that exorcism. It's that crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That kind of thing. 
Well, it's important to mention that execution for victimless crimes like blasphemy, apostasy, adultery, masturbation, and gay sex continues in the Maldives, Mauritania, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Afghanistan, Brunei, Iran, Mauritania, and some northern states of Nigeria, also Pakistan. In addition, severe corporal punishment like caning and maiming, like cutting off people's hands, continue to apply to such minor crimes that probably shouldn't even be considered crimes in many countries. So obviously this type of legal barbarism is closely connected to the world's scriptures, including both the Bible and the Quran, and they're one of the most brutal outcomes of so-called theocratic law. It's why we harp constantly on the radical secular about the dangers of theocracy. Another peculiarity of early American capital punishment is the combination of vigilantism, summary justice, and the need for speed. Rangham writes, quote, It was not unusual for criminals to be hunted down by citizens, tried, convicted, sentenced, and executed in less time than the four days that were supposed to elapse after the pronouncement of a death penalty, end quote. I suppose here they wanted to get the killing out of the way quickly, lest cooler heads prevail and spare the condemned victim, or maybe he gets rescued by a member of his family. I don't know. But the whole thing just seems like pure bloodlust to me. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And I think that that bloodlust carries into the modern world as well. You see it when there's a prisoner about to be exec executed at a prison and there's you know, like pro-execution protesters with like deranged, let them fry signs and all that kind of stuff. It's the same kind of thing. Well, and, and as we'll find out later, uh, this relentless drive to execute people we deem a threat to society is buried deep in our evolutionary brains. And, and like you said, once, once, a, once someone is condemned, it really gets people going, right? They really, they really get excited about this thing because they get to watch somebody die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think honestly, if, if they televised executions, people would pay big money to see it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if... If they could do gladiators, you know, with, you know, the condemned, I think they could put it on pay-per-view with massive success, you know, massive. Um, yeah. If you had like, imagine if you had MMA, but somebody, you know, only one person comes out. of the Yeah, fight. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, according to Rangham's figures from 1622 to 1900, there were 11 to 13,000 legal executions in the U.S., he documents an additional 10,000 lynchings, but that figure seems painfully low given what we know about violence during Reconstruction and up to the present day. I don't want to get too caught up today in talking about America's racially violent past. We've covered that before, and we will be definitely talking about it again in the future. But lynchings and state-sanctioned executions are a bit different in a really important way, since Lynching could be considered violence against an outgroup, while most state-sanctioned executions during colonial times were members of the white in-group, and it's in-group violence that led to human domestication. We're talking about tribes forming coalitions within their tribes to put down bullies and troublemakers. And that's the paradox of the execution hypothesis, which is referred to in the book's title, The Goodness Paradox. Our ancestors literally killed off the worst and most violent members of our species, leading to self-domestication, which has made us a better species. The reduction in reactive violence has led us to where we are now, where most thinking civilized people have concluded that the death penalty is counterproductive and we should leave it behind. It also kind of reminds me of the tension in our political systems. We know that Darwinian evolution made us what we are, but yet social Darwinism leads to terrible outcomes within civilization. So we'll talk more about this paradox as we move along, but I want to, I wanted to open this up for any discussion, Drew. Yeah. Um, 
you know, a part of me understands the, the, the base instinct of like, you do something that's so extreme that violates the social compact in such a way that you should be removed, you know, from society, from the human gene pool, even I, I, there's a, there's a part of me that understands that, but the implementation of the death penalty, particularly in America is so backwards and so wrong. And there's a finality to death that you don't get from having someone imprisoned. You know, there's a reason we have appeals and, you know, I, I think of cases like the West Memphis three, or Amanda Knox uh, in Italy, you know, these people who are condemned by, you know, the machinations of the system when science demonstrates that they are innocent and they could have easily spent the li their lives behind uh, bars or be executed. Um, so the justice system is flawed, not just in America, but worldwide. And until we iron out more of those flaws, it's hard for me to jump on board with uh, the death penalty just in general. Um, yeah. As we're going to find out, I mean, as we talk about this more and more, we're going to see that the reasons behind they're, they're often very, very flimsy reasons and, and, and they, they could be false reasons like, you know, the witch trials and things like that, or the inquisition. These were all areas where authorities took matters into their own hands and committed organized violence against people who were innocent. And, they didn't have DNA. They didn't have even a systematic um, process for for collecting and presenting evidence. I mean, it's just it's, it was all so primitive, and and it's just really really hard to, when when you cross that line between justice and vengeance and family feuds and all this kind of crap. So, all right, well, let's move on then to talking about capital punishment in small scale societies. This wasn't a topic of scientific research until the 1980s. And in this section, we're also going to talk about the show Sons of Anarchy, which is, for those who haven't seen it, it's an organized crime drama about a violent California motorcycle club called It's the, awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, Sons of Anarchy is also sometimes abbreviated Sam Crow, which stands for Sons of Anarchy Motorcycle Club Redwood Original. <laughs> and that's because they're, uh, I guess, I guess they were in, in this fictional town kind of near the Redwoods. So... Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and they're, they're the original faction of the, uh, of the uh, club as well. Which has many chapters throughout a lot of Western yes. states. Yeah. And we've seen some of these same ruthless dynamics that are in that show in Italian mafia dramas like The Godfather or The Sopranos. Basically, these shows tell us a lot about how small tribes of people operating outside the law have established their own stringent moral codes that invariably include the death penalty. And these fictionalized dramas are based on a tight knit group of people focused on family, honor and survival. And they tell us an awful lot about how things were done in pre-legal human hunter gatherer societies, which were usually composed of small bands of 50 or fewer individuals. And as I was, it's like, it's so funny because I'm, I'm watching, I'm binge watching Sons of Anarchy right now. And, and at the same time, I was prepping for the show and rereading this chapter. And I, I just couldn't help but note the parallels between the two scenarios. And there's another thing we have to discuss here. And that is, before we can even talk about this stuff, we have to debunk the notion of the noble savage. And that is the that, that was the, um, I believe, the second, the second section of uh, Steven Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, it was just talking about how really rough life was and how violent people were in, you know, during, during, during our prehistory. And 
a lot of people have this idea that somehow primitive tribes were idyllic and everything was peaceful. Everyone just got along. And the most laughable part of this is when you hear people talk about how hunter-gatherers had more time off and had better lives than modern workers. And I suppose it might make some sense if you don't count <laughs> little detail like physical safety or having <laughs> any rights at all to go against the group. Uh, but one thing is clear from this book, and that is capital punishment in small groups is a human universal. Anthropologist Keith Otterbein confirmed this, and another anthropologist, Christopher Bohm, later amplified his work reporting capital punishment in every inhabited continent, including among the Inuit, North American Indians, Australian Aborigines, and African foragers. And one key to understanding indigenous forms of capital punishment is that it often requires the unanimous consent of the community, or at the very least, a buy-in from the majority. We can relate this directly to Sons of Anarchy. You might recall that when a member of the motorcycle club, or MC for short, was found to have either killed another member or if he ratted the club out to the government, a vote was taken to see if that member should, quote, meet Mr. Mayhem. In other words, be executed for their crimes against the tribe. And the rule in the, in the MC is that such a vote on capital punishment must be unanimous. For example, Clay Morrow, who was the president of the MC for the first few seasons until he was ousted by his stepson, Jax Teller, for killing Jax's father and putting out a hit on Tara Teller, Jax's wife. He was unanimously voted out of the club, but when the vote came on whether Clay should be executed, one member voted to save him. I thought that was kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, Clay was one of the better characters on the entirety of the show, I thought. Um, he, he was a, a complicated figure um, because there were times when you sympathized with him, but he was still such a rat bastard that you kind of wanted him to meet Mr. Mayhem, you know, through most of the series. He is, I mean, Ron Perlman is a great actor and a great human being, and that's what makes it so hard to watch sometimes some of the stuff, the way he treated people, the way he treated uh, his wife, and, and just, just, you know, uh, his general depravity, you know, it's, it's hard to watch. And, and yeah, you did want to see him die. Yeah, he did um, a, a film called The Last Supper that I thought was interesting about like a bunch of uh, uh, liberals who basically have a dinner party every week where they try to find like the most despicable, you know, conservative asshole they can and they have them over for a dinner party and they uh, uh, kind of interview them to see if how despicable they are. And if they find them irredeemable, then they murder them at the dinner and bury them in the Rose Garden. That was a great so, film. <laughs> yeah, I love that yeah, film. Yeah, but I remember Ron Perlman was kind of, he kind of played like the Bill O'Reilly sort of right winger, you know, Alex Jones sort of, sort of character. And he did an incredible job in that piece. He does a really good job as just playing an asshole in spite of being just a wonderful human being. It's, you know, it's good, it's good because for him, I mean, I've, I, I've never talked to him, never met him, but, uh, like it must just be really great to be able to explore your dark side in that way. Cause most of us don't get to do that in civilization. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I remember he, he, I can't remember the name of the movie, but he, he picked one role in one of his films because it had this monologue that was just like ripping on the Confederate flag. And like he said, that monologue was why I chose the, to, chose to do the film, which I thought was really cool. So Yeah big, big Ron Perlman fan. He's badass. Yeah. And he, he took some great pot shots, uh, against Trump when he was in office, which I thought was awesome. I mean, Oh yeah. He did he did not mince words. He was like, like Jeff Tiedrick or one of those guys who just, just ripped into him. Great, great stuff. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting when we talk about Sons of Anarchy's approach to capital punishment, it it, it could be lifted right from the uh, the Kung San, from the Kalahari Desert. And Rangham talks about this in the book. He says, quote, the anthropologist Richard Lee studied the Juhonasi or Juhuansi or Kung San, the famously peaceful hunter-gatherers of Botswana's Kalahari Desert. Lee reported how a community came together to solve the problem of a member of their group who had killed three men. The murderer's name was Twee. In a rare move of unanimity, wrote Lee, the community ambushed and fatally wounded Twee in full daylight. As he lay dying, all the men fired at him with poisoned arrows until, in the words of one informant, he looked like a porcupine. Then, after he was dead, all the women, as well as all the men, approached his body and stabbed him with spears, symbolically sharing the responsibility for his death. It is as if, for one brief moment, this egalitarian society constituted itself a state and took upon itself the powers of life and death. And end quote. I personally, I think this approach is key that all members of the tribe shared moral responsibility for the death. It's definitely a precursor to the idea of criminal law and punishment by anonymous execution. Remember that in a firing squad, members don't know whether they are firing a real bullet or a blank, which helps to depersonalize the execution. Everyone in general has killed the condemned prisoner and no one in specific. So does this community approach to capital punishment resonate for you, Drew? And how does that compare to the modern criminal justice system? Well, you know, it's kind of like that saying, uh, democracy can be two wolves and a sheep choosing what's for dinner. <laughs> you know, um, the, the, the firing squad analogy is particularly interesting to me because uh, I, th I think they're all guilty. You know, they're all, I mean, obviously all guilty. I think that's just a, I don't want to say cop out, but just a, a dodge you know, of, of alleviating responsibility for, for what's taking place. So you're saying, I mean, I mean, separately, separate and distinctly from the idea, whether or not it's a good idea for the state to kill people. Are you saying that the agents of the state are, are, are equally culpable, whether they fire or not? I mean, if, if they're complicit in the whole program of it, I don't see why they aren't personally. Mm. I mean, I think the whole idea is so that none of them will ever really know whether they whether they whether they actually killed the person or not. Yeah, on a personal level, I understand for like the, the sake of their personal like peace of mind, you know, I get why they do it. But I don't think it it in the broader picture alleviates their bigger responsibility and their part in the system. Yeah, they're still an executioner regardless. Yes, that's that's <laughs> that's basically what I mean. All right. Well, now we come to the question of establishing guilt. And in tribal societies, it's anything but a formal process. Recall in Sons of Anarchy how Jax, he's read old letters alluding to his stepfather's culpability in his father's death. And he's ready to act and do something about this. But other members of the club keep saying to him, we don't have proof. And he knows he needs proof to take it to the table. So uh, he's got to choose between either just murdering Clay and dealing with that blowback or uh, getting a club vote to meet Mr. Mayhem. And so kind of hijinks ensue as he tries to find the evidence and enlists other club members to help him unearth the facts that he can bring to the table, which is a delicate dance for Jax because if he moves too aggressively, he'll tip off Clay that he's under suspicion and you know, he needs to be able to bring this de definitive proof that will result in a unanimous verdict. And I think in some ways, this TV show, uh, the Hollywood writing kind of fiction overstates the ethics of how these things are usually handled among criminals. 
I think I think maybe the Godfather is more accurate. I mean, they just shoot him, you know. <laughs> uh, but the loyalty they show in this in this writing to require uh, by Kurt Sutter of requiring proof and this drive for justice are almost, you know, certainly influenced by our modern justice system. And they're trying to, you know, kind of act as if the club is has this, you know, higher higher sense of of morality. And what do you think about that? I mean, I think it serves as interesting allegory. You know, it, it uh, it's always funny to me. There's a lot of people who watch these kinds of shows, Sons of Anarchy, The Sopranos, you know, The Wire, that are brilliantly written and crafted in a way that are meant to make you think about broader issues. But there's a lot of people who watch these shows just thinking, yeah, snitches get stitches when <laughs> the character, you know, the lead character shoots the guy who's talking to the cops or whatever. You know, so I think it all ties together for sure. Um, yeah, the way they wove it, you know, too, it's like so many times, uh, you know, Jax is trying to make a deal. Various other people are talking to the feds, trying to make deals. And and then their whole, you know, the entire uh, cartel deal ended up being with CIA agents. You know, so it's just it's just sometimes it stretches credibility. But I, I do think that it's still we still get a sense that uh, there's honor among thieves and there, there is definitely, yeah. these are human beings. They're not monsters. I mean, they, they could be monsters one minute and, 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 you know, extremely human the next minute it's, and they could break down crying. I mean, you know, after the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kurt, Kurt Sutter kind of laid that on pretty thick with the auto character. I think there's that scene where he's supposedly going to talk, but he slams his head down on the desk to bite out his own tongue. You know, I, know. That's, I think that's nailing the, the the point down pretty hard. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like he couldn't still write, you know, he could rat in other ways. Right. But it was, it was very symbolic. So many things yeah. in that show were symbolic, even the visuals, the way that, the way that Jack's looked, I mean, uh, you know, they're, they're very, very metaphorical, but Okay. That's not even I, to speak of the whole Hamlet, you know, uh, correlation to the whole story. I mean, it's very deep. Exactly, and you know, you look in you look in Mayan's MC, and there was some uh, re you know references to fourteen stations of the cross. I mean, these guys are very they're very on point with their allegories. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's true for a lot of these crime series. Like I said, The Sopranos and The Wire, and and a lot of these. There's a lot more than just cops and robbers, bad guys and good guys killing and all that kind of stuff there's there's much deeper themes to it no it forces us to really think about who we are as as human beings and and um and and what does it really started with all of these anti-heroes from 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 dexter to the sopranos to you know all these shows there's been there's been dozens of them that i can't even name now the shield yeah. right and and yeah. oh yeah <laughs> dealing with anti-heroes is i just think it's so much better because things aren't black and white. It's like you started out the show mentioning, mentioning general Sherman and you know, he was not a saint. Definitely not. Definitely not. But you know, in, in left-wing meme culture, he's just kind of become the anti Robert E. Lee, the anti Stonewall Jackson, just because his tactics during the civil war were so ruthless, but the, the, the systems and people he was being ruthless to more than deserved it. I mean, I think of those, sepia toned photographs of those poor slaves from that time with the scars on their back from the from the whippings from the ken burns films and stuff and i think yeah yeah burn those assholes to the ground well that's just it when it comes down to it like we we 
there's a lot of, and, and we did this a little bit ourselves in this, in this show talking about Cuomo and wanting to hold a high ethical standard. But in the end, in the long game, what you really want is you want the good guys to be better than the bad guys at accomplishing everything. Like, and that includes mayhem, you know, unfortunately you, you wanted, you wanted those, those, uh, you wanted our guys to win world war two. You, you did not want the, the Nazis to win world war two. And in order to do that, we did some horrible things. We carpet bombed Dresden. We, yeah, you know, we dropped the atomic bomb on, 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 you know, we, we, we <laughs> firebombed Tokyo. We killed as many people yeah. in Tokyo with firebombing as we did with a nuclear bomb. So we have not been wearing a white hat. No, and I and I find the Japan one particularly interesting because I'm a big fan of Japanese culture. You know, uh, I'm a big in, big into video games and anime and manga and all and their their import action figures, all that kind of stuff. Godzilla, you name it. I'm I'm all in with that stuff. You know, I think that Japan of today is a force for good in the world. You mm -hmm. know, and. They have the second highest population of atheists and agnostics in Asia, right behind China. So it's worth acknowledging. They're not a perfect culture. I'm I'm looking at you, whaling fleets, but <laughs> overall, with their culture and uh, their their technology, I think they're a force for good in this world. But I don't think that you can say the same about the imperial Japanese of the 1930s. You know, and where that line, you know. Uh, gets crossed it's it's a tricky one because you know we 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 dropped that atomic bomb but they they still were so fanatical in their stance that they still didn't didn't surrender at that time and we dropped another one and then they finally surrendered right so it's it's complicated yeah, there's, there's some question though as to whether or not like if we just given them a little more time they, after the first one it's just it gets so morally complicated there. The, the one thing that we can say, though, is that after World War II, both of the sort of imperial powers, Germany and Japan, turned into very, very like some of the best modern democracies that exist. Yeah. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Well, I wanted to I wanted to say one more th thing about and, and 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 ask you, like, who you think is the worst villain in Sons of Anarchy? Because I know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked a little bit about this before before we were taping, and and I think we're in agreement that uh, the big bad of that show is Gemma. Yeah, absolutely. Gemma. And I remember when this show was airing, and on social media, there was a whole thing of "Are you Team Gemma or are you are you Team Tara?" Right, and it shocked me that that was a thing because I found Gemma to be so hateful. And I mean, don't get me wrong, Katie Segal, wonderful person. Uh, 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 great actress did an incredible job with the role, but the character was so hateful, so manipulative, so vile, and yeah. so selfish, self-absorbed. Her her idea of family and all of that was just really all about her. Only so about I, her. I, 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 it, it horrified me that there were so many people who identified with that. But I guess I should be surprised. <laughs> Well, you know, if you if you watch any of the fan, um, you know, chats and videos about The Handmaid's Tale, you get the same thing. You know, are you on Team Luke or, or you know, it's like, OK, guys, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about this this horrible situation and you're going to pick a team. OK. Anyway, yeah, I, I would have to agree that it's Gemma and we 
you know, we we see that as we get into the 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 final season of the show, you know, she's committed this heinous murder and then she's pinned it on someone who was totally innocent and started a complete gang war that resulted in everything being burned, burned to the ground. And she just literally destroyed everything she touched. And so, you know, and that was that was her her I think her best skill was misdirecting guilt from the from the guilty party, which was often her or uh, somebody she was protecting to an innocent party. And so it's 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 a great segue into talking about how our human ancestors established the guilt necessary to execute a tribe member. Uh, before we get into that, though, I want to read another quote from the goodness paradox. Rangham writes, so in many ways, individuals in these small scale societies are freer than those in larger agrarian groups where individuals are subject, in the words of the social anthropologist Ernest Gellner, to the tyranny of kings. But liberty has its limits. In the absence of domineering leaders, a social cage of tradition demands claustrophobic adherence to group norms. Gellner called it a tyranny of the cousins. The cultural rules are paramount. Individuals have limited personal freedom. They live or die by their willingness to conform. Gellner's cousins did not have to be literally relatives. Cousins in the context of a small-scale society is a metaphor for the group of adults whose decisions hold sway. Their power was absolute. If you did not conform to their dictates, you were in danger, end quote. So sounds very familiar in the context of yeah. Sons of Anarchy. Uh, you're bound by these group decisions. You can't leave. If you disobey, you face mortal danger. And a lot of that danger comes in the form of gossip or information control, which is why we saw in SOA that uh, Gemma's attempts to control the narratives were so deadly. The secrets she was protecting were life-threatening. Words spoken or withheld between club members became mightier than the sword. And this is also true in primitive human societies. This taboo on ratting goes way back. It's not just a taboo on ratting to authorities, but also against breaking the sanctity of the male tribal council. Rangham writes about the initiation rituals for a young man, quote, when he joined a men's society, he was instructed that if he revealed their secrets to women or uninitiated males, he would be killed. A tattletale could be killed by his father or brother. The male coalition was more important than kinship, end quote. And this has kind of tremendous implications, even in terms of our drive toward feminism and equal rights, because male resistance to female inclusion goes incredibly far back in our evolutionary history. So the vitriol and hatred we see today coming from so-called men's rights advocates has deep evolutionary roots. You were going to say something, Drew. I was just going to say that quote that uh, you read just sounds like Nazi Germany, <laughs> you know, like every, everyone's everyone's, you know, uh, watching you, everyone's watching each other. But that's the reality of these small scale societies. And, and they were much more like this idea that they were just all these like, like little families, all, you know, tribes sharing food. And it, it, it was so not like that. And I think so many people who are, who don't appreciate modernity, you know, they, they, they think that they would like to live in those times. And you trust me, you would not. You would not want to live in a hunter-gatherer society. It was, it was brutal. No, no, it would not be fun. Be pretty stressful, I think. Yeah. So I mean, and 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 you see that um, there's just this tremendous drive that 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 we're still dealing with, where men want to keep certain things, you know, away from women, 
and you know special knowledge. And we often stereotype gossip as a women's domain, but it's always been so much more than that. And men have played a major role in turning gossip into a deadly weapon. And all of this ties our human self-domestication into language because you know you couldn't plot and plan to kill someone if you couldn't talk right and so chimpanzees they could they could kind of imply things but the the real the the real dirty down and dirty gossip and spreading of lies or 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 getting together the coalition to kill requires language so this is a, another quote from Rangham chimpanzees sometimes kill adults of their own communities but there is no evidence that they can plan to do so. As I discuss in chapter 11, language seems necessary for planned killings of specific individuals. The criticisms and ridicule given in response to an aggressor depend on gossip for their conspiratorial power. When those gentler methods of social control do not work, people start floating the idea of killing the offender. For that, linguistic ability is vital and considerable skill is needed. Gossip solves the coordination problem by allowing individuals to test their feelings cautiously and to generate shared plans. Most likely, therefore, linguistic ability improved substantially in the Homo sapiens lineage compared to all other Homo. With that improvement came the ability for individuals within a group to form coalitions that excluded or ostracized a member of the group who had become a domineering aggressor. Those coalitions enabled human selection against excessively aggressive men. In short, the ability to murmur about how much we resent some other individual and to float the idea of doing something drastic about it has certainly been part of the human legacy for at least a few thousand generations. If competent language began to develop 500,000 years ago, its increasing social significance would help explain how our ancestors started controlling the alpha males and thereby bred a new kind of homo. In this model of self-domestication, language was really the key feature of homo sapiens that allowed many tools of social control from gossip to killing. End quote. Drew, isn't this a really stunning thing to realize how much of human history has been shaped by the use of poisonous language to generate the ill will necessary to galvanize a coalition? Yeah, you know, it's out of necessity that we, you know, band together, essentially, right? So. Yeah, and I mean, you weren't you weren't here for the, for some of the earlier episodes on this, but but the 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 fact that we are who we are now as humans and that we can get along as well as we do has everything to do with the fact that we just eliminated like the most violent members. And, and so, um, it's like dog breeds that, you know, came from the gray wolf, right? So over generations, only the, the ones that are most gentle and mellow towards humans are the ones that get bred, right? And over generations you get, you know, the chihuahua. Yeah, we talked about this. We talked about this regarding foxes in, in, in one of our earlier episodes. There was a whole breeding program uh, experimentation that went on with foxes and, and actual body changes, changes in the shape of their skulls, changes in their fur, changes in patterns accompanied this uh, domestication syndrome. And, and humans have done the same thing. But then we, so we sort of evolved that now. We've brought that forward into our uh, civilization where we, you know, gossip is a, is a thing. I mean, it's still a thing. You can still take down careers. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, especially now with the internet. Yeah. Well, and if, you know, if, if you're guilty of some crime or offense against the community, your very best play to survive might be to float gossip that would get someone else blamed and killed. And we saw that with Gemma, 
And, and uh, we, you know, she convinced Jax with a few words to torture and kill an innocent man. And that whole thing started a brutal gang war. So all that violence just, you know, put into motion with just a few words. And this to me really helps crystallize the conversation about hate speech versus free speech. Because when we understand how much language can be weaponized and the role that hate speech has played in fomenting countless genocides and massacres from Armenia to the Jewish Holocaust to Rwanda and elsewhere, we really have to consider whether this enlightenment tradition of absolute free speech is wise or even compatible with human flourishing. Isn't it just too easy to weaponize language? Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about this last week, you know, um, in, in relation to COVID and COVID misinformation is that ideas have consequences. You know, I, th I think that the First Amendment needs another look just like the second one does. I don't think that absolute freedom in any of these contexts is is the answer or necessarily virtuous. I think freedom needs context to be a virtue. Um, and in the context of, as you said, of someone spreading a rumor that lead that uh, uh, leads to a gang war where people are massacred, obviously that uh, has consequences. You know, even though we're talking about fiction, um, it just kind of shows the ripple effect, right? So I, I think that's what it boils down to. Well, and you can see, I mean, our founding fathers had no idea about the role of. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of funny because. In some ways, they did because you you hear this in the church all the time. You hear people you you hear churches constantly condemning gossip, right, and saying. But I think they do that more because they want to be the center of power. They want everything to go through the priest. They want everything to to be run, you know, from in a top down way. And gossip allows a community to to bubble up grievances from below. And so, gossip is always a is, is a precursor to revolution. It's 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 like hugely important and. You know, I, I want to underscore the point about planning and conspiracy once again, that, that gossip could be seen as the genesis of all human politics. And, and, and the cliche, the pen is mightier than the sword is really being seen right now with what's going been going on in the Internet in the last 25 years. Uh, rhetoric, secrets, propaganda, information control. Um, and this is what Rangam points out. He's he clearly says that even in even in the animal kingdom, weapons were not needed for capital punishment. He, he says, quote, animals such as wolves, lions and chimpanzees kill using collaboration, not weapons. Humans can also kill without weapons. The ability to plot together rather than the ability to make weapons surely determined when the change occurred in the balance of power between the classic alpha male type and the new coalition of subordinates. Because what he says earlier in the book is that any um, it just took. It was. It, it was a certain. At a certain point, people figured out that they could. That if you got enough people together, they could kill any bully, no matter how big he was, and and so that was when the power shifted. Okay, continuing with his quote here, it's an example of what psychologist Michael Tomasello calls shared intentionality, defined as collaborative interactions in which participants share psychological states with one another. If the hypothesis that selection against reactive aggression led to the domestication syndrome is correct, however, none of those human abilities was as special as the one that enabled conspirators to trust one another sufficiently to collaborate to kill a bully, end quote. So, Drew, I want to talk about how we differentiate our understanding of how capital punishment was used in small-scale societies versus how governments use capital punishment today. Well, I think a line can be drawn in the jury system, right? Like we're just kind of pulling from society essentially randomly. Uh, 
for the jury system and entrusting them with that level of responsibility to kill another human, either with weapons or without, right? Um, so I think that's a that's a d pretty direct correlation right there. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, you know, I've 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 never been all that fond of of juries myself because I think it's I think it's easy to sway a jury with rhetoric. I think that um, yeah. we've seen this happen many many times, and it, it's it's like this is sort of a holdover from our past. We think that if twelve people agree on something, that it's just. Yeah, I mean, we saw that wasn't true during the O.J. Simpson trial, right? I mean, clearly guilty, overwhelmingly guilty. That that bastard basically cut his wife's head off and stabbed that poor man to death, uh, and got away with it because people were angry at the LAPD and they went with their emotions and their feelings about what was going on at the time, and however they felt about you know the 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 uh, prosecutors and the defense and all that. They went on all that instead of the clear cut evidence of the situation, which is pretty scientifically sound. I mean, you don't need to be a, a, a biologist to hear those 911 calls no. <laughs> and, and know that that killing her was the next step, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And 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 all that, that, that theatrics about the glove, you know, the glove don't fit, you must have quit, you know? Yeah, like it's all theatrics, it's all emotion, <laughs> and it doesn't speak to the truth of the matter. And it's, uh, and to entrust that power uh, to a group of 12 people who may or may not understand DNA may or may not understand, you know, th these sorts of things, uh, I, I think kind of speaks to what you're talking about. That sort of, uh, uh, small scale tribalism that, that we're discussing. It is. And we've seen, I mean, it was George Zimmerman, but, and, 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 you know, countless hundreds or thousands of, of, of black people who were condemned by all white juries, or, or white people who were acquitted by all white juries of killing black people. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just um, there really has never been real justice. It's all been based on this, on this innuendo and convincing people, convincing other people to go along with something. Right. And if you get 12 people, now you're legit. Now you can, now you can murder someone, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I want to read Richard Rangham's afterward because he he has a very strong statement. He makes a strong statement about capital punishment in general. And then I want to just I want to uh, we're we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to uh, run a couple of examples by you and like like say you know can we make exceptions to this? Absolutely. So here we go. Here, here's what Rangham has to say. Quote. The theory presented in the preceding pages suggests that our ancestors inadvertently created a more peaceful version of themselves, partly by killing the most aggressive males. This means that capital punishment is a natural behavior that produced morally attractive results. Does that imply any social recommendations? Does it mean that we should embrace executions as a way to improve society? My answer is a resolute no. Whatever the contributions of capital punishment once were, they are irrelevant to the question of justifying its use today. The administration of the death penalty by the powers of the state is very different from its use in small communities. Consensus is no longer required, nor is the killing performed as it often was by close relatives. Conditions have changed. Prisons offer alternative forms of social control that our ancestors did not have. I believe that judicial execution is an outmoded punishment that should no longer have a place in the world. Capital punishment is generally found to be ineffective in that it does not lead to a reduction in crime. It is more expensive for society than imprisonment in some countries, such as the United States, it is strikingly unjust because it targets the poor and disadvantaged, and it makes mistakes. 
Innocent people have often been put to death. We can understand our past, but in this respect, we should not admire it. The evidence that capital punishment has had a long and creative prehistory is irrelevant to contemporary societal questions, end quote. So, what say you? Well, you know, I, th I think that's, that's a, a pretty solid way of looking at it. I, I, I definitely value that perspective. I, I liked Hillary Clinton's um, take on the death penalty, personally, where she basically said that she did not trust the states to implement it responsibly, but that she was willing to make exceptions for very extreme specific federal cases. And the example that she gave was Timothy McVeigh. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to make a case that that man should still be on this earth. Yeah, it, it just is. Other than the fact, the base level that he's a human being, which I mean, so was Hitler. You know, I don't know yeah. if that's enough. You know, so it's a complicated question that I'm not sure I have all the answers to. But I, I definitely liked that take. That was probably probably the, the best I've heard it put that I would like to see um, that I've heard in a way. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's true because federal power would theoretically have the most legitimate legitimacy, right? If you have 12 people versus 30 people versus a hundred people versus a whole state, right. Versus a whole nation agreeing right on something, then, you know, by proxy, of course, through, through, through the systems of elections. But um, cause I think, if you're looking at child murder, someone who's inciting genocide, someone who's committing treason against a democratically elected government, climate criminals who, who are lining their pockets and doing things that could kill billions of people. I mean, it suddenly becomes, when you really start thinking about totally abolishing the death penalty, um, I completely agree with it for any normal petty crime up to and including, you know, capital murder, right? But if there's if there's extenuating circumstances like terrorism, like genocide, like like treason, you know, I think I think we have to keep it in our back pocket. Yeah, I think that's I think that's about right. You know, uh, like I said, I I can't find a, a, a decent reason that Timothy McVeigh should still be around. Like what for what purpose? You know, what good does that serve anybody? Yeah. And I have another question about this. And and I'm just wondering what you think, because given what we know about how prisons operate and the horrific violence and corruption that takes place, you know, prisons are basically, they're just full of gangs and you have to join a gang to be safe and guards are corrupt. And is that really much more humane than the death penalty? I would argue that it is because death has a finality to it. Once you're dead, that's it. You know, if you're the victim of gang violence or, you know, guard corruption or whatever in prison, there's still a possibility of you maybe getting out on appeal or, you know, something yeah. happening, right? Something changing for you, but there is no change once you're executed. And that's certainly true. And, 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 and I agree with that, but I just, I think that as a society, if we want to claim that we're becoming more humane, it's not good enough to just throw somebody into a corrupt, violent prison, right? Because how okay are you if you're like repeatedly raped or uh, have your eyes gouged out or some other horrible torture done to you, how, how, you know, how much of your humanity does that actually take away and kill for good? 
Yeah, and it, it starts to get into the territory of are is the purpose to reform the person or simply to punish them? Are you trying to rehabilitate them to release them back into society? Or is it more of a vengeance thing where they did the thing and therefore they must do their time or what have you? Well, I think a lot of people even make a joke out of it. It's like, oh, you know, go to, oh, go to prison. Oh, don't drop the soap. You know, they, 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 make a, uh, they consider that that sort of torture and violence and rape is a part of the punishment. And they, they kind of like, they kind of rub their hands together with glee a little bit about it, just like you have people uh, taking pleasure in, in an execution. And so I, I really think that if we want to eliminate the death penalty, that we also have to reform prisons. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the two go hand in hand for sure. And I think there are a lot of European countries that have already, you know, way ahead of us on this. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's it's right to just say, okay, we're not going to kill you, but we're going to subject you to torture and who knows what, you know, rape and beatings yeah, I mean, and what have you. It is torture because like, even if nothing actually happens to you, how, how, well, how well do you think you're sleeping in prison? You know, for months on end, years on end, you know, you can never get a good night's sleep because you're always afraid it's going to, you know, your number is going to come up. And I think that uh, there's a whole separate discussion to be had, what you just mentioned about restorative justice, where, you know, the, the, the criminal can turn around, turn their life around, help the victim, uh, help, help make good for their crime. That's one thing. But even if we're just going to lock people up, you shouldn't be in fear for your life. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, great discussion, Drew. This about wraps up our time. And uh, with that, also our series covering human self-domestication. I just want to say to our listeners that I cannot recommend this book, The Goodness Paradox by Richard Rangham, highly enough. It's an essential part of your library, and it's going to forever change your perspective on who we are as human beings. And I also recommend that you watch the show Sons of Anarchy. If you didn't catch it the first time around, it's on, you know, Hulu or whatever, and it's seven seasons. I guess that's about 90 episodes in all, but it's well worth it to binge or just watch it over a few months if you have the time. Yeah, I'm actually uh, jealous of the people who get to binge watch it now because I watched it week to week as it aired. So there were times where it was like, oh, what's what's next? And now people can just go right through it. So enjoy. It's really good. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of great lessons there about small scale societies, loyalty, betrayal. And you also have to see it as a kind of modern day Shakespeare, as we, as you mentioned, and don't miss the follow-up Mayans MC. It's a great show too. It's still in production now. I think it's going into season four next year. So any final thoughts, Drew? Oh, great discussion. I'm looking forward to more. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think that's all I got. Okay, well, that's our show for today. Remember, if you like it, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. Take care. The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, and Joe Okipinti. Logo and main title designed by Tim Stetner. Post-production and original theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. Okay.